Now in chapter 35, we find Elihu is reproving Job for inferring that he's more righteous than God. Listen to him here now in chapter 35. Elihu spake moreover and said, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou saidest, My righteousness more than God's? And actually, that's what Job was saying. The minute that Job said, I'm all right. Is God all right? That's the question. I know I'm all right, and I'm suffering. So it must be God is wrong. That is the inference, you see, that you have to draw from that type of reasoning. Now, he moves on, and let me move on here. He says, verse 5, Look unto the heavens and see. Behold the clouds which are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? Or if thou transgressest, be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? Well, that would be the question that Job would raise, you see. My little life is not affecting God, but it is, my friend. That is the wonder of it all. Your sin today is something that is almost infinite. When Abraham sinned, they're still paying for that over that land today. When he took that Egyptian handmaid, Hagar, at the suggestion of Sarah. Sarah and Abraham were wrong. How wrong were they? Well, look over there today. And we just happen to have had about 4,000 years of it. Sin's an awful thing. It does affect God. Now, verse 8, Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the son of man. You are a witness, friends. You are a preacher, regardless of who you are. I said that to a drunk man once his mother had asked me to talk with him, and I saw him coming down the street. He lived down below the church, and I headed him off, and I detoured him into my study, and he wobbled. He barely could sit there. And I told him what a low-down, dirty, ingrate. He disgraced his mother, was breaking her heart. Centered. He just sat there and took all of it. And then I began to say, I said, you preach by your life. And I said, you're a preacher. Say, he stood up and he wanted to fight me. You could call him anything in the world except a preacher. Well, friends, you're a preacher. Your wickedness will hurt somebody. And your righteousness may help somebody. And he says here, by reason of the multitude of oppressions, they make the oppressed to cry. They cry out by reason of the arm of the mighty. But none saith, where is God thy maker who giveth songs in the night? Oh, that is so wonderful. You see, it's God He's the one that gives songs in the night. The only place of happiness is God. Have you ever noticed the expression, Blessed be God, blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus? What's the word blessed mean? It means happy. God is happy. And he wants us happy. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining that last time because there was now forgiveness. There was sacrifices for sin, and God would deal with man in grace. My, I tell you, friends, John said, We write these things unto you that your joy might be full. He's the one that gives songs in the night. The nightclub, they have got songs, but it's blues, and you pay for it. And you have a headache the next day. It's God alone that can bring happiness to you. And that's so important. And this man learned that way back yonder at the very beginning. Now he continues on in chapter 36. God, here's the great teacher, you see. And he's the greatest teacher of all. Remember, it was said of the Lord Jesus, Never man spake as he spake. He was a great teacher. 
That's the great value of the gospel. They tell two things. Actually, not the miracles. It's his teaching that's so important. His greatest teacher. And then his death is recorded there. His death and resurrection. That's the gospel facts, by the way. And the fact is, he's a great teacher. My, I tell you, friends, we are going to see Job introduced to Jehovah. God's going to break through. Storms coming up at this time, and the storm will break. And out of that storm, God is going to speak to this man. And it's in the storms of life today that God wants to speak peace for you and me, friends. All that you and I may not let circumstances come between our soul and our God. Now we come here to the 36th chapter of the book of Job, and we have actually two more chapters of the discourse of Elihu. Elihu, and I'm reading now verse 1 of chapter 36 of Job. Elihu also proceeded and said, Suffer me a little, and I'll show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. Now, he's defending God. He has what most of us have, a limited knowledge. We're dealing with an infinite God, and we don't have all the answers. That is the difficulty that a great many people have today. A man said to me, I can't believe. And I said, what is it you can't believe? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again? He believed that. Well, I said, then why can't you trust him? Well, there's so much else, the creation, Jonah, Noah, and the miracles, and he had all kinds of problems. And he said, writing to me, you've made the statement that it's because of our sin that we are unbelievers. And he said, I want to be a believer. May I say, he's committing, I think, a real sin, and it is this. He is letting what he doesn't know disturb him from what he does know. Now, a great many people know that. And if you know enough to trust Christ, these other things will adjust themselves. I'm sitting in a chair here. Now, there's a great deal about this chair I don't know. To begin with, I don't know who made it. I do not know the company. I do not know very much about this chair. don't know what kind of wood it is, some kind of plastic covering on it. I really don't know very much about the chair. But, friends, I know enough to sit down in it and trust myself to it. Now, you know Christ died for you? No, he rose again? All right, then trust him as your Savior. These other things will take care of themselves in time, I can assure you. And if it's necessary for me to know more about this chair, I think I could find out. But all I need to know is just enough to sit in the chair. And I know very little about an airplane. In fact, I'm even fearful in getting on it. But I get on it. I trust myself to it, you see. And that's all God asks you to do when you come to Christ. And so we're letting many of us, what we don't know, disturb what we do know. Now, will you notice what he goes on to speak of here? Because he's quite limited, as we'll see. He says, I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I'll ascribe righteousness to my maker. Now, that's the same thing that Paul put down in a little different way later on. Paul made the statement, is there unrighteousness with God? And the answer is, let it not be. It's not 
true. God is righteous in all that he does. Now, this man is ascribing righteousness to God. But he's also making it clear that God is so far removed from man that actually we can't know him. And there's an element of truth in that, by the way. Now, what is it today that's separating us from God? Let's look at what this man is saying here. He says, verse 4, "...for truly my word shall be false. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee." That is, only God has perfect knowledge. Behold, God is mighty and despiseth not any. He's mighty in strength and wisdom. He preserveth not the life of the wicked, but giveth right to the poor." He withdraweth not his eyes from the righteous, but with kings are they on the throne. Now, the whole sense of this is just simply this. God is far removed from us, and he's separated from us, and actually we can't communicate with him because of that. Now, this man is wrong in that, and that is a difficulty a great many people have today. Listen to what Isaiah later on said that separates man from God. It's not distance. It's not because God is great and we are small. It's not because he's infinite and we are finite. Here is the problem. Listen to Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he'll not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue have muttered perverseness. And on and on he goes. And he spells out the different sins. And God says, these are the things that separate you from God. And today... There's no reason for you and me to be separated from God. Even the sin question has been settled. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And today we can come through him to God. Job was crying out for somebody to make the connection for him. Now, Elihu came nearer than anyone else, but he didn't make it. And that's the reason God finally broke in on this man, as we shall see. Now, notice what he says here in verse 22 and 23. This reveals what we're saying. Behold, God exalteth by his power. Who teacheth like him? Who hath enjoined him his way? Or who can say, Thou hast wrought iniquity? Can communicate, you see, with him. But he does say this, No one can teach like God can teach. You know, that was the thing that marked out the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to this earth. He was the greatest teacher of all. Never man spake as this man spake. Never one taught like he taught. And friends, the teaching of the Lord Jesus down to this present hour is the greatest teaching that the world has ever had. Now, there are many rejecting him today. And yet, they're talking about loving your neighbor. They're talking about mercy. They're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) They talk today about putting in many of the teachings that he gave. Well, who in the world's trying to put in the teachings of Plato or Aristotle? And they were smart boys. May I say to you that today, 
The Lord Jesus still stands as the greatest teacher. Who teacheth like him? Now, we come to chapter 37 here. And this man here is inferring as we move down into the chapter. And I'll have to drop way down in the chapter. And I'm just going to lift out these two verses here. Fair weather cometh out of the north. With God is terrible majesty. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He's excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Men do therefore fear him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. Now, again, you see, he's inferring that God is so far removed from man, we just can't communicate with him. And he's way up yonder, and we're way down here. And therefore, we see here that that which has separated God and man has been the sin of man. This is a tremendous statement, and chapter 37, I think, reveals that this man, Elihu, is not a proper mediator. And that's one of the reasons today that I have never specialized in counseling. If you want to know the truth, and let's just keep this you know, between us. I don't know enough to be a counselor. I think a man today that's going to pose as a counselor, he's sitting in the place of God. He takes the place of God. And that's what the friends of Job, you see, they were taking the place of God in this man's life. They were going to counsel him. And their problem was their knowledge was not adequate. And today, I think the great breakdown in counseling is that we're not all-knowing. We are not omniscient. We do not have all the knowledge that is necessary. I have a very wonderful doctor. As many of you know, I have cancer, and it's necessary for me to have a good doctor. fact of the matter is, I wanted the best, and I think I have the best. And the thing I like about him is he's not all-knowing and all-powerful. He tells me many times, I don't know. And I don't know why, but I like that. It makes him a human being, and he's not in the place of God. He's just a fine Christian, and he's attempting to serve the Lord. So he doesn't take God's place, doesn't usurp God's place. Now, this man, even Elihu, almost moves into that place. And therefore, he breaks off here. He just doesn't really know God as he should. He's so far removed, he said. Well, that wasn't the problem. And now God is going to break through. And you'll notice verse 22 of the 37th chapter, one of the last things that Elihu said, he referred to the weather. And he gave a little weather report. Fair weather cometh out of the north. Why do you suppose he said that? Well, all the time that this man was speaking, and I think during most of the discourse, a storm was forming way over on the horizon. And as it, I think, grew dark, that the storm began to advance. The wind began to howl. And I think that a few drops of rain was falling. And it was a very wicked storm, by the way. And everybody ran for cover. And Elihu finally is here, and I think he takes off. And poor Job is left there. 
Now God breaks through. And God breaks through on this man in his weak place, by the way. And that weak place is just where we've left off, the inadequacy. God is so great. The mark of a good teacher, and we've said the Lord Jesus was the greatest teacher, and God is a teacher. He's teaching Job here, and he teaches us today. The Lord Jesus is the one that wants to teach us. And one of the marks of a great teacher is that a great teacher will begin where his students are, and he will move up to where he wants to bring them. That's the mark of a good teacher. Have you ever noticed? And we'll see it here, first of all. God begins right where they left off, in nature, storm coming up. God breaks in as the Creator. He begins there. He's going to bring this man where he wants to bring him to. Then the Lord Jesus always did that. I think the parables of the Lord Jesus, he never made up one of them. He just reached out yonder in the lives of the people of that day. And behold, a sower went forth to sow. While on a thousand hills in that land, you could have seen a sower sowing the grain. He began where they were. And the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took, hid in three measures of meat. That had been seen time and time again. Our Lord began where they were, and he brought them to where he wanted them. And Paul was that kind of a teacher. That's the reason some people misunderstand the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. That has to do with the tongues there. Paul is beginning in that chapter with them where they were. They'd gone off on that. Now Paul is leading them away from that to a higher plane, that they are to come up where they should be today, manifesting the body of Christ so that you'll find all the way through the Word of God that here is the greatest teaching of all. We always begin where people are. And I used to, when I'd go from city to city in speaking, and I don't do this today because I'm a little better known, but in those early days, I always bought a paper. And if I could buy it for two or three days before I began a conference, I'd find out what the local situation was. Well, if they were having a mayor's race or there had been some sort of a scandal or if some famous person was there, I always would like to start with a casual reference. Try to be humorous, for instance, and something very light to begin with. Why? To begin where they live. That is something that you get from the Word of God. Now, notice, when God breaks in, we've come to the great part of this, and Believe me, if I felt totally inadequate up to this point, I don't know what to say now. I feel like just keeping quiet and closing the Bible and going off the air, but we can't do that. So let me just read what God says and make a few comments as we go along. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, That's out of the storm, you see, that now has broken upon them. And God is speaking to him as the Creator. Who is this that darkness counseled by words without knowledge? (laughs) And now this is the second time, and God's going to come back to it, by the way, 
And we'll find that Job will finally be willing to say that he was uttering words without knowledge. That, my friend, is an awful sin. And I think today that we are having these talk programs on TV that they're not only committing an awful sin, but most of them are the most asinine that are imaginable. And they accomplish practically nothing at all. But they make for entertainment for some light-headed folk, apparently. Now, may I say to you that God says, Who is this that's darkening counsel by words, words without knowledge? It's just like taking a bunch of words out of the dictionary. And we find that a great many people do that. The man said he always liked the dictionary because the stories were so short in it. Well... A great many people just pull out a few words and attempt to put them together. And whether they make sense or not is not maybe important to some, but the fact that they're big words. And my, they say, can't he use big words? Now, verse 3, "...gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me." Now he begins with creation. Here is the verse that I've always wanted to put in the front of every geology book, but they won't let me do it. But I'd like to put it in every book, whether it's written by a Christian or non-Christian, makes no difference. Put it in the geology book. Listen to this. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you? And that's a good question. What is it that holds these universes in space, and they're not standing still. That's the amazing thing about it. You and I are on a little earth that is probably as unstable as anything can be. And I'm not talking about earthquakes. I mean, there's nothing under it holding it up. But I don't know which is under as far as the universe is concerned, and which is top, which is bottom. And why doesn't it start going in some direction? And why does it just go around and round? And what keeps it going round and round? Apparently been doing it for millions of years. The question is, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? And when I read about the geologists, I was with one up in northern Arizona. He took me up to a ridge. I just thought it was a ridge of sand there. Couldn't understand why the sand had piled up there. He kicked away the sand, and you know what was there? It was a petrified log. And I said to him, my, where'd this come from? He said, California. Well, I said, who hauled it in here? He says, it floated in here. And if you want to look at that Arizona desert, I can't imagine that there was ever any water there to float anything. But that's what happened. That log floated in from California, and there it is. They had a day of petrified log. I said, when did that happen? Well, he said he thought probably 250,000 years ago. And he said it like he was there when the log arrived. May I say to you that he may be right. I'm not contradicting, not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that there are a lot of folk today that, seemed to know what took place millions and millions of years ago. God says, 
Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Now, do you know where you were when God laid the foundation of the earth? Where did you come from? Now, verse 5. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Now, in that day, men knew God as creator. You must understand that the book of Job apparently comes from the period before any word of Scripture was written. So that actually God begins with him where he began with man at that particular time. And Paul stated that in the first chapter of Romans. He says in verse 19 of the first chapter, "...because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Now, the thing that is all important for us to see here is that God was speaking to man in that day through creation. Now, that's the reason that you have this section here, and God's beginning with them where they were. And they were close enough to creation in that day that there was no atheism. There was polytheism. They actually worshiped the creature rather than the creator, as Paul continued to say in that first chapter of Romans. Now, he could refer to creation, and that would be on the basis and the ground that these people lived on. Now, I'm not going to attempt to develop this section here. It has to do with creation, has to do with this physical universe that you and I live in today. And it speaks of God. It speaks of the fact that, as Paul says in Romans, tells two things about God, the person of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. Creation reveals that. And it reveals the greatness of our God, how great thou art. And when you read this section, that is the impression that you're bound to get as he speaks of the fact that he is the creator and that he knows something man does not know. In verse 22, there's a very interesting statement made. It says, "...hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail?" Now, there are some very fantastic interpretations that are drawn from this of how the snow and the hail will be used in warfare. And I know it was what defeated Napoleon, but I'm not about to get out on a limb again today. You'll recall that some time ago that there was a little pamphlet put out about a computer that was used in the space program and located a day that was lost. And I referred to it on the radio program. And believe me, friends, I certainly heard from that one, because actually that's been traced down as 
that's not accurate at all, of course. And that's the danger of attempting to draw out of these wonderful passages of Scripture some fantastic interpretation. The Bible is recording miracles. And the whole point God is making here to Job is, this is what I've done, Job, but you can't understand it. And men today cannot enter into these things. Only God knows these things. Now he says in verse 23, "...which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war." So that snow and hail, and I know that I'll hear from some folk that will inform me about it, how it's going to be used, and that'll be all right. I'll be glad to hear from you. But that's already been put through my mill a long time ago, and I've passed it by because I think there's something here we don't know, friends. That's the point that God is making with Job. And he goes on to talk to him about the starry heavens. And in verse 31, "...canst thou bind the sweet influence of the Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season, or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons?" Out yonder in the heavens, these tremendous stars. Now, I do not know how much the ancients knew of them. Apparently, they knew a great deal more than we've given them credit for. It's my understanding that the Egyptians knew the distance to the sun. And they actually were a little bit more accurate than we are today in our measurements. And therefore, they must have had a great knowledge. And now... God goes on in this vein that he's the creator. And have you really known God through his creation? And I think he's making it clear to Job that the creation reveals his greatness, but you can't know God. You can know something about him, but you'll not come to know him in this way. Chapter 39, verse 1. Knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Canst thou mark when the hinds do calf? In other words, God is the God of nature. And today, the things that are happening in nature, God makes them happen. Nature would be dead. Nothing would happen. There would be no spring, and there'd be no summer, there'd be no fall, there'd be no winter, there'd be no storms. There'd be no movement in this universe. It would come to a dead standstill if there wasn't a creator back of it, my beloved. You can think that one through. Now, that is the point that God is making to this man Job, revealing his greatness. And this man Job now has a chance to answer. And I want you to listen to him. Here's something's happening to him here. Here is what he says. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Job, are you in a position to give God a lesson? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. And actually, Job had spoken without knowledge. And he's attempting to instruct God. He's attempting to tell God something. And he's in no position to do that because he's been uttering words without knowledge. And will you listen to him 
Now Job answered the Lord and said, verse 4, Behold, I'm vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Job says, I should have kept quiet. Now I see I'm vile. Now, is this the man that said he would maintain his integrity regardless of what happened? Is this the man that declared that he was a righteous man and therefore there must be something wrong with God to let this thing happen to him? Well, this man now is saying that he's vile, as someone has said. If we could see ourselves as God sees us, we couldn't stand ourselves, my friend. And when you get into the presence of God, this is what you're going to have to say. I'm vile. Now, actually, this appearance of God to Job had a threefold effect upon him. It had an effect upon his relationship with God, with his relationship to himself, and with his relationship to his friends. This is the man that hath spoken without knowledge. And his words are without wisdom. And this man now wishes he'd kept his mouth shut. Listen to him. He says, Once have I spoken, but I'll not answer, yea, twice, but I'll proceed no farther. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I'll demand of thee, declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? In other words, are you trying to say to God that he's wrong? And, of course, God is not wrong. Job is going to be able to say to God now, I know thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. This is a tremendous place that he's come to here. He's certainly advancing now, he does not know himself. He says, I am vile. And when a man discovers that, he's come a long way. And we're going to see that there are several steps that he takes as he comes to God. Now, the Lord breaks through again on this basis of creation. Job, look around. You're in nature. There are a lot of things you don't know that you're looking at. And how can you judge God in his moral government of this universe? There's so many folk today that come up with some of the most asinine statements concerning God. And I've heard Christians make some very foolish statements concerning God. Now, we ought to be very careful what we say about him, and we ought to keep it in the context of the Word of God. This man actually did not know God. That is quite obvious here. He is uttering words without knowledge. When the Lord breaks in upon him, he asks him some more questions. Chapter 41, verse 1. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord, which thou lettest down? Now, this great monster of the sea, what do you really know about it? And today, they're studying these gray whales off the coast of California. And they're doing many things, try to find out about them. Well, look, we've come a long way since the day of Job. We still don't know about these big fellas that are in the water. 
And what do we know about dinosaurs? I heard this whimsy about the man that was a guide in a museum. And he came to a dinosaur in the lecture he's given to the crowd that went through. He says, this dinosaur is two million and six years old. And a man came up to him and says, wait a minute here. He says, now, I'll accept that two million years, but where do you get the six years? Well, this man says, when I came to work here six years ago, that dinosaur was two million years old. I've been here six years. It's now two million six years old. May I say to you, friends, what do you know about Leviathan? What do you know about dinosaurs? Do you really know about them? Well, man just has to say, well, I just don't know. I'm not an authority. And any man that's a real scholar today, I don't care what field he's in, he'll tell you, I haven't mastered this field. We're just learning today. Well, now, if man is just learning, may I say to you, he's in no position to pass on God. And that's the thing God is telling Job way back yonder at the dawn of history. Now, notice the effect upon Job, and we come to chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Is that the kind of a God that you have he can do anything? Now, I know now the old saw about, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Now, may I say to you, that's like the question you ask Mr. Milktoes. Are you still beating your wife? Well, you can't answer that by yes or no. And that other question has no answer for the simple reason that God never does anything foolish. He always does things in the context of his character, and he's always true to himself. And so you can't tell God to do something that he can't do. You know why? Because, my friend, you're in no position to do that and God's not your errand boy after all, and he's not going to jump through a hoop just because you hold it up. May I say to you, listen to Job now. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Job says, I've been talking about something I don't know anything about. That is the way we used to have bull sessions and the college dorm I went to. We had finished studying at night and meet in some room. Some fellow said, what are we going to talk about? And I used to say, well, let's talk about something that we don't know anything about. Then the sky's the limit. We can say anything we want to say. My friend, may I say to you, he's been talking about things he knows nothing about, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. He's talking without knowledge. He doesn't know. Now, will you listen to Job? Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I'll demand of thee, and declare thou of me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Listen to Job now. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Now this man Job, he has a new conception of God now. He's not in a position to question God in anything that he does. He's to trust him. He's in a new relationship. Now, he's in a new relationship with himself. He sees himself, first of all, as vile. And then he says, I abhor myself. You know what he's doing? 
He's repenting, my friend. These are the steps. I repent in dust and ashes. These are the three steps, really, of repentance. Is first of all, do you see you're vile? And the second, do you abhor yourself? My friend, when you quit trusting yourself, you quit trying to live on an old dead carcass, and you'll turn to the living God today. That's repentance. And that's the repentance that is in faith. What a wonderful thing it is. We come now to the third one, a new relation with his friends. Verse 7, It was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks, seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. Notice now, a new relationship with his friends. Instead of fighting against them, debating with them, he's now going to pray for them. He's now going to offer a sacrifice for them. We're not to argue religion today and fight among ourselves. What are we to do? This is the thing Paul says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye that are spiritual, restore such a one. A new relationship to God, a new relationship to himself, and a new relationship to his friends. Now, God does something for this man Job. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now, how did God give it to him? Well, he used human means. Then came there unto him all his brethren, all his sisters, all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house. They bemoaned him and comforted him over the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. This is the way he got started. God gave him twice as much. How? Because these friends stake him to a new beginning. And believe me, Job was a good businessman. And he had twice as much as he had at the very beginning. Now, this is something, though, that's interesting. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than the beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke ox, 1,000 she-asses. Now, wait a minute. All of those are double, but it says he had also seven sons and three daughters. And somebody says he didn't double them. Yes, he did. You see, those that died, his sons and his daughters, he didn't lose them. They're still his. He'll be with them. I guess he's with them today. And those that we lose in death. I've got a little one up there, as I said before. I used to say to folk, I have two children, two daughters. <laughs> But they all look around and only see one. They think something's wrong with me. I got one in heaven. And very frankly, I'm not worried about the one in heaven. I am worried about the other one. I worry about her, but not the little one yonder in heaven. God doubled the children of Job. But the thing, look at the names they were given. He called the name of the first Jemima. And I thought that was for pancakes, by the way. And the name of the second, Keziah. And the name of the third, Karen Happer. Now, friends, if you have quite a few daughters in your family and you've been trying to think of a new name, I have a suggestion. Now, Jemima's been used, 
But how about Karen Happen? That's a good name for some girl, by the way, and I guess they would call her Hap for short. Karen Happen. These are the names. And we're told this after this lived Job 140 years. That puts him back with the patriarchs. And he saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. What a glorious book this is. What a lesson it has for us. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.